The powerful name of Jesus Christ has a polarizing effect of either inspiring a community or threatening it. Sort of like the name of Dr. Barry Hannigan. Dr. Hannigan was a professor of music theory at Bucknell University, where I attended in the late 90s. Nobody in the music department was indifferent toward him. The mere mention of his name compelled either squeals of delight or groans of agony. Because he required you, by the end of his music theory course, to identify the title and composer of about 30 pieces of music from simply a series of 60-second clips. His final project required each student to give an hour-long presentation unpacking the inner workings of a single piece of music. And he did that for two semesters for all music majors and minors. I loved him, but many feared him. The difference was simply whether you valued what he valued, the theoretical side of music, which was something I valued. If you were inside his circle of values and aspirations, you found him inspiring. But if you aspired to something different, you actually found him quite threatening. Few were indifferent toward him. And in a similar way, the Lord Jesus Christ has always been a polarizing figure. Many people, even in our own day, draw great comfort and inspiration from the name of Jesus. But if you have the audacity to proclaim Jesus as the only way to get through to God, you will be labeled an intolerant bigot. Many people, even people who ought to know better, find Jesus a threatening figure and they find Jesus' followers a threatening community. And it has been this way from the beginning, as we will see this morning in Acts chapter 4. We'll, we'll look at our text under two headings. You can see in your outline, the name threatens and the name inspires. Let me pray now for our time in God's Word. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes and our hearts that we might see and behold the name of Jesus, your holy servant, whom men killed, but you rose from the dead. And help us to see and glorify him and proclaim his mercy and cling to his grace. Help us now, we pray, by the power of your Spirit dwelling within us and among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up our study this morning of the book of Acts right where we left off last week. Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, have healed by the name of Jesus the Messiah the legs of a man who has been lame from birth, such that he now walks and leaps and praises God in the temple. The people all rush together to see this marvelous evidence that the messianic kingdom foretold by the prophets has come. 
And Peter told everyone in the temple about the salvation that God has brought through his servant, Jesus. And the priests came up with their guards and threw both of the disciples and the formerly lame man in prison together. They were provoked beyond annoyance. This is in verse 2 of chapter 4. They were provoked by the fact that the disciples were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, they were bringing a seditious and a treasonous message. A message that God would dare to raise the dead and make all things new. You see, the very last thing the current authorities want is for anything to be undone, for anyone to be raised up. The last thing they want is for the old world to be overthrown and replaced with a new world, because that's what the promise of resurrection is in the Old Testament. They want to maintain the status quo and keep their power as long as possible. So we pick up from there. To see just how threatening the name of Jesus is to those who ought to know better. Verses 5 through 22 of Acts chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them 
because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, the narrator tells us here in verse 6 that all of the very important people were there that day. This was the next day after the healing. They all gathered together. We had uh, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all of the high priestly family. They gathered to figure out what to do with these subversives. And their chief question in verse 7 is, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, who gave you the power to heal a man like this? And who gave you the authority to speak about resurrection? Peter responds, not out of self-defense or self-interest, but he responds, verse 8 tells us, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he wisely reminds them that all they've done is a good deed for a crippled man, verse 9. But he then answers their question. I'll tell you exactly what power and what name made this possible. Verse 10, it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he further identifies Jesus by two facts about him. Jesus is the one whom you crucified, and Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead. He tells them that that, that you have gone about trying to build your little temple, this thing that you call mistakenly God's temple, In verse 11, he says, you builders building your temple, you came upon this stone that is Jesus and you set him aside. You tried to cast him off. You wanted to grind him to powder. But God had other plans. God had to step in against you and he set Jesus in place as the very cornerstone of his new temple. He is the one who bears the weight of the structure and he holds the entire thing together. In using this imagery here in verse 11, Peter's alluding to Psalm 118, which is a passage Jesus also used when he stood before these very men in these very temple precincts just a few days before they had him executed. And Peter's not trying to be cryptic at all. He's telling them that, that there are competing temples here. You're building your old temple still, but God is making a new temple. And it's all these people who are believing in Jesus, the cornerstone. You see, he comes right out with it in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, all of this puts these priests in a real pickle. You see, they cannot own up to having been mistaken about who Jesus was. But they also can't deny the evidence literally standing right in front of them. Verse 14. This lame, formerly lame man who is now walking. And so all they can do is kick the disciples out of the room while they try to pull themselves back together. 
What shall we do? Verse 16, everybody knows about this miracle. But, verse 17, we can't let this sedition against us and against our nation spread any further. We know that they are promoting a, a new temple, a, a rebellious temple. So let's intimidate them into silence. And Peter and John, remarkably, are, are unfazed by the intimidation. They come out, they say, we'll let you decide whether we should listen to you instead of to God. The things that we have seen and heard, we cannot but speak of them. What is the point of this story? The point of all this is simply this, that the boldness of those who gather in the name of Jesus poses a grave threat to those who gather against the name of Jesus and who ought to know better. The boldness of those who gather in the name of Jesus poses a grave threat to those who gather against the name of Jesus and ought to know better. Friends, if you think The kingdom of God is something to assist you in your own power and comfort. Or that the kingdom of God is something to make your nation the greatest nation on earth. Or the kingdom of God is something to make your race supreme over all races. Then you will be gravely threatened by those who proclaim in Jesus the resurrection. You see, you can't do anything to harm people like that. I mean, the worst you can do is kill them, right? But seriously, how can you stop the power that brings life back from the dead and creates a new world? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that he is overthrowing the old world, the old powers and authorities in the heavenly places, the old traditions and systems of men. This means that you can't keep doing what you're doing and get away with it for very long. The tidal wave of his resurrection life, of his new kingdom, is bound to overtake you and swallow up all your best laid plans. This is why people absolutely hate it when Christians are bold enough to declare in public that following Jesus is the only way to get right with God. You see that truth? Jesus is the only way. That is a truth of resurrection. But those who don't want to die so that they could be raised to new life, they can't handle that truth. They will never want that truth. They will never see the beauty of that truth. They will only see the truth as something that's intolerant and hateful. 
You see, they can only label it with the labels they know from their own actions. They are intolerant, so they can only label it as an intolerant. They're hateful toward it, so they label it as hateful. And so they are compelled to do everything possible to crush it, to stamp it out, to grind it to powder, just like they did with the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Let me speak to the children for a moment. Those here with us, those listening on Zoom, children, if people get upset with you, maybe your friends or your teachers or even some of your family, if people get upset with you for being a Christian, that doesn't mean that you have done something wrong. It's so easy to think that if people get upset with me, I must have done something wrong. But friends, following Jesus is a wonderful privilege and opportunity, but you need to know, even while you're young, that a lot of people are going to be really scared when they see you following Jesus. And they won't know what to do. Let me continue some further application by asking some hard questions of all of us. If you call yourself a Christian and so name the name of Jesus Christ, how do you feel when you see other people boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and doing so in very public ways? How does that make you feel? Do you feel embarrassed by what you perceive to be their youthfulness or immaturity? Do you feel indifferent and try to forget you saw what happened? Do you feel defensive as though you now have to justify why you weren't speaking as boldly as they were? Or maybe do you feel jealous as though they have some insight, some passion or some connection to God that you're afraid you'll never have. Friends, if any such feelings resonate with you, you really ought to know better. And please beware, lest you harden your heart and eventually number yourself among those who gather not in the name of Jesus, but against it. Let me pursue this line of questioning a bit further. How do you respond, not just when you see others boldly proclaiming Jesus, but how do you respond when you see bold Christians threatened by good people? By good people. I'm not talking about the threats of manifestly evil people, as in, ISIS terrorists, for example, beheading Christian missionaries. It's easy to condemn that, right? But I'm talking about the threats that come from people who really should know better. How do you respond when you see bold Christians threatened by people like the high priestly family of Israel? Or people like the, uh, the mainline church down the road? Or people like... Christian college faculty, or seminary graduates, or lifelong churchgoers, when such people aim their darts 
at Christians who boldly proclaim the resurrection and life for the world through the salvation available only through Jesus, when those darts fly, how do you respond? Do you feel afraid or disconcerted, wondering how to avoid such ridicule or attack yourself? Do you feel ashamed or unsettled, as though the person under attack must have done something wrong, such that you need to distance yourself or choose a different path, perhaps some greater academic respectability, something so that this doesn't happen to you. And I'll be honest, this is a real struggle for me. That's why I've thought through the ins and outs of this. I often have this fundamental belief, I know it's wrong, but it's this core belief I, I struggle to resist that a person under attack must have done something to deserve the attack. And that leads me to the belief that I think I can grow to be wise enough or winsome enough to avoid a similar attack myself. And this is foolishness. If your Christianity and if my Christianity has no place in it for innocent suffering at the hands of well-meaning critics, then you and I may not be quite as grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ as we thought we were. Because Christianity from the beginning has never been primarily about preserving your public freedoms and escaping resistance. But it has always been about sharing in the suffering of our master, Jesus. How are you tempted to compromise the message so that you won't have to come under further attack? Even as I ask these uncomfortable questions, I must make a qualification here as well. Because we need to be careful not to adopt an exaggerated Christian victim mindset. And this is the mindset where we interpret any disagreement or any inconvenience we face as the same thing as persecution for the faith. And so I don't want to encourage that. I don't want us to do that. To give one recent example from this, our recent election, there are many, many things about President Trump that I think have been quite laudable and never got enough credit in the press. And there are also many, many other things about him that were utterly deplorable and I think didn't get enough criticism from his religious supporters. But sadly, regardless of what you think of the president, sadly, I've been reading so many people online especially white evangelicals who are equating this year's election results with Christian persecution. As though the Donald has become our new Messiah and the fate of Christ followers is inextricably entwined with his fate. And Joe Biden is on the verge of being labeled the Antichrist. And brothers and sisters, such victimhood on the part of Christians is not noble. It is not rooted in the truth of Christ's kingdom. If Emperor Nero 
tossed Christians into the Colosseum to be devoured by ravenous lions, and the kingdom of Christ could still thrive in ways no one ever expected it to, then I think the church will survive the administration of another democratic president or a Republican Senate, or whatever political subgroup you are most inclined to see as the greatest enemy to the practice of your faith. These disagreements are not the same as Christian persecution. So please understand that the name of Jesus Christ rightly understood and clearly preached will threaten many well-intentioned communities. But not all threats we face are arising from persecution for the sake of the name. Let those who are wise learn to discern between these things. And may we draw our courage and inspiration from that very name of Jesus, because his name not only threatens, but second, it inspires. Now that Peter, John, and the formerly lame man have been released, look at what they do with their freedom. Verse, starting at verse 23. Down to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, Peter, John, and the formerly lame beggar go back to the group of Christian disciples. They tell everyone about the warning they received not to speak any further in the name of Jesus. And this report triggers quite a prayer meeting as the name of Jesus now inspires them forward. Luke's extensive summary of their prayer is certainly not exhaustive. What's written here takes only a minute and a half to say out loud. I doubt their prayer meeting was that short. But as always, Luke intentionally arranges his material to make a point. He wants us to see their roots and their requests in how he shows us, summarizes this prayer. First is their recruit, their roots. Their prayer begins, verse 24, all the way back at the moment of creation. And it extends up to the present minute in verse 29 with the threats that have just been made against them. So you see, they they see themselves as rooted in the work that God has been up to since the moment he created the heavens 
and the earth. This is the same God who made heaven and the earth and the sea. Verse 24. And he, that same God also spoke in history through the prophets, including the great Israelite King David. And so they quote in verses 25 and 26, the first few verses of Psalm 2 as a part of their prayer. Psalm 2 is a poem all about the blessedness of the righteous Israelite who submits to God's appointed king. That's what the anointed one means. It's, it's the, the chosen one, the one chosen to be king. And all the nations may rage against that king and take up arms against him. We see that in verses 25 and 26, the first two verses of Psalm 2. But the next few verses of that poem, in Psalm 2, in those next few verses, God laughs at them. At all these nations that are raging. And it's not a ha-ha funny sort of laugh. It's a mocking laugh. Is that all you've got? Peter and John and the others are so rooted in the Hebrew scriptures and in God's work, the history of God's work from the day of creation until now, that they see themselves firmly planted in the name of Jesus Christ. They call him, verse 27, your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed. You see, they recognize that Jesus is that anointed son that Psalm 2 spoke about. And this means that the treatment Jesus received by the kings of the earth is they're so rooted in him that now that very same treatment is what they receive as followers of Jesus at the same hands. You see, from the Psalm, verses 25 and 26, it talks about the Gentiles and the kings of the earth that arise against God. They're not all of the unbelieving pagans out there because look at verse 27, how they interpret it. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they gathered together against your anointed God. You see, the Jews themselves have now taken up the mantle of an unbelieving, godless, and rebellious nation. We already saw this earlier in the chapter with how the priests and their officers have treated Peter and John. And we can't miss the beauty of verse 28. Even though the Jews and the Romans united together against God's anointed king, Jesus, they were only doing what God had predestined for them to do Anyway, this helps us to understand God's mocking laughter in Psalm 2 in a new light. You see, not only does he laugh because the raging nations are impotent against him, but he laughs because even in their raging, they are doing exactly what he determined they would do. And they don't even realize it. They're doing his work for him without knowing it. (laughs) That's worth laughing about. The main idea in the first part of the prayer here is that for these disciples, their inspiration arises from seeing how their story fits within the cosmic flow of history. All the way from creation through humanity's great rebellion and on into the prophets and the uprising against the Lord Jesus himself. That's their inspiration because they are rooted. This is their story. Uh, They are a part of this. And our inspiration ought to look similar. 
What drives us week after week and day after day to continue serving and proclaiming God's holy servant Jesus as the chosen one? What drives us to do this is not that we need to keep him happy. And we're not driven to these things because we're good people who want to do the right thing. And we're not driven to these things because we hold to traditional values. No, what drives us to press on is that we recognize our roots in the history of creation and rebellion. And we have been made part of what God has been up to since day one when he spoke light into darkness. We have been rescued and called out of our own rebellion to now serve and proclaim Jesus as Lord of all. And so we are compelled to continue speaking and doing good in his name. Any attacks we face for doing so have already been accounted for in the plan God established for history before any of it took place. These are their roots These are our roots by which the name of Jesus inspires. Let's end with their requests. This is a prayer meeting. So what do they ask for in verses 29 through 31? Notice that they don't ask for deliverance. They don't ask for judgment to fall on their persecutors. They don't even ask for relief or for comfort or for greater freedom though there are times when it would be fully appropriate to ask for such things. But look at what they do ask in this moment. Beginning of verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. See, they ask three things. First, they just want God to see. They want God to look and and take notice and not forget them. They would like him to remain true to the work he has been doing from the creation until now. And they would like him to laugh at the attacks of those who unwittingly do what he predetermined they would do. And they think they're doing it rebelliously. Second, the second request, the end of verse 29, is grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They ask for help here because they know their weakness they know their temptation towards shame or fear they know their tendency to turn inward and shut down and so they simply ask for even greater boldness and they ask for the opportunity to continue speaking his word god open up more doors and give us boldness to walk through them third request in verse 30 is, is while you do that, Lord, please keep doing this other thing. Keep stretching out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, the last thing they want is for God to continue doing good through them. They ask for healing. They ask for signs. They ask for wonders to verify and corroborate the words that they will speak boldly. All of this inspiration comes right back to the name of Jesus, the name of your holy servant Jesus, the powerful name, the glorious name, the magnificent name, the polarizing name. This name 
the name of Jesus, and I don't mean just the word Jesus, but the person represented by the name, is the name that both threatens and inspires. When the name of Jesus is in the foreground, some communities will be inspired, while other communities will feel threatened. It all depends on whether you share his values. Have you confessed Jesus to be your king, the Lord of heaven and earth? Have you seen that the salvation you're looking for, the salvation from sin and death, the salvation from suffering and illness, the salvation from the world and the devil, this salvation can be found in Jesus alone? Have you discerned that there is no other way for you to know God or be right with him other than through this one man, God's holy servant, Jesus? When you recognize these things, you don't need to feel threatened anymore. Even though many people will believe you've lost your mind and they label you intolerant or bigoted, you will know what is true and you will love what is true. You can call on the Lord Jesus and find life. You cannot be indifferent toward this name. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, O Lord, please look upon the threats of those around us. Please take notice and continue doing the work you've been doing from the creation until now. Our Father, please grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Please rescue us from our own weakness and our temptation to run away, to turn inward, to give up, to run down in this age of coronavirus. Lord, we know that cannot stop you. Grant us to continue to speak with all boldness. And Father, please stretch out your hand to heal. And may signs and wonders be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, that many will see and turn from their rebellion to believe and follow him. We pray these things in the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. Amen.